Καλημέρα σας. My name is Alexia Hatzimichalis. I'm heading the Athens office of Watson, Farley and Williams. I would like to take this opportunity to thank Capital Link for inviting me to moderate one of the most interesting panels that we have today. Because we are going to discuss how to combine tradition with innovation and also the panel will uh, share its views on uh, and vision about the future. So I would like to introduce you to Alex Hadzipateras, who is the Executive Vice President of Business Development of Dorian LPG, John Dragnis, who is the CEO of Golden Port Group, Susanna Lascaridis, who is the CEO of Lavinia Corporation, I'm trying to, I cannot see who is, Ioana Prokopiou, who is the CEO of Prominence Maritime. And last but not least, Ioannis Martinos, who is the founder and CEO of the Signal Group. So this panel consists of the next generation of ship owners. And what we have here today is essentially a panel of young individuals that already have a leading role in the industry's next steps into the future. And uh, I would like to ask Ioana, if I may, uh, as the next generation, how do you see your role in the family business? Good morning, everyone, and thanks for having us in organizing, and Nicola and Olga. Um, I find that uh, being part of the second generation is a wonderful thing. It has lots of benefits, but it also carries a lot of responsibilities with it. Um, one needs to be very mindful that the business they're entering is someone else's baby. Uh, the generation before us developed it and made it what it is today with all its strengths and perhaps some shortcomings. Um, on the other hand, when you are a youngster entering the workforce, you have all these aspirations of doing uh, meaningful and uh, creative work. And uh, each of us spends so much time at work, so, so we need to to, to find something that, to do that is fulfilling. Uh, we need to enjoy it and uh, to use our talents and uh, being creative. And uh, there's an extra hurdle when you are of the next generation. Um, you, you have this sense that you need to prove yourself and you, you weren't just handed a position and uh, you had to earn it. And uh, in, there are instances where even perhaps unwillingly your fellow co-workers might size you up or scrutinize your moves or even compare you to the previous generation. And this setting can be a little bit uh, intimidating. So it's hard to find a role that is uh, fitting. So from my side, when I entered the business, I wanted to do something that would allow me to feel useful, be creative and have a good learning curve. Um, so initially, it was quite hard to locate a position that would uh, help me to, to achieve those goals. Um, a few years down the line, though, an opening uh, in a position that was quite uh, interesting occurred. It was the, the S&P and projects, and um, the gentleman was leaving, and I was given the opportunity to take over that, uh, that role. And uh, I decided to go ahead. I left everything that I was doing. It was in the middle of the summer. I came back to Athens to do the handover. And uh, that's what I did for the next two years. And I was very fortunate to be able to work very close with my father, from whom I learned a lot. And uh, after a couple of years passed, I wanted to expand my scope outside the, uh, the commercial side and to see more of the role of what the whole uh, 
shipping cycle is. So I decided to set up a small uh, bulk carrier company with two ships. And this would allow me to follow the day-to-day -day, uh, of two ships, which is basically into a smaller scale of what a large company does. And uh, I also wanted to have uh, the, the responsibility of my own decisions. And that's what I did until the circumstances had it that I was uh, promoted to, uh, to heading all of our dry bulk operations, which I do until today. Um, but in concluding, I, I want to stress that in order to succeed in what you're doing, you need to have the trust of the previous generation. Um, they need to allow you to fail in order to learn from your mistakes, and they need you to, to you need to have the space and the necessary tools to grow. And I have to say, I've been fortunate enough to, to have all of this. Thank you. Thank you, Ioana, for sharing with us your personal experience. Uh, perhaps someone else for, from the panel, Ioannis uh, Martinos. Uh, I guess Ioana yeah. covered almost everything that that the second generation person <laughs> has in mind. Uh, indeed, it's a huge opportunity when you're born into a situation where a lot of things are handed to you, starting from you know a very good education, but also uh, not just a traditional education, but a business education. Then you have a responsibility to do something with that. Uh, you can choose to do that within the confines of the family business, or you can start something new like Ioana did. I think both are excellent uh, choices. Uh, and, you know, the, the best one depends really on the special circumstances of everyone. Um, you know, you have families that, uh, let's say, the, the founder is more controlling than in other families. You have uh, families where uh, the, there are many siblings and cousins. I've seen Greek shipping companies with like 20 family members in them. So certainly in such a situation, it's harder, let's say, to find a, a role. Um, so I think, you know, we should take responsibility for our own actions. We are definitely pampered from a young age and given a lot of opportunities. But then we have to go out there in the world and prove that the quality of decision making that we can bring to the table is uh, to the level, let's say, that um, will make you a successful person. Um, and I'll take it one step further as well. I think I will also admire people that have, let's say, grown up in a certain industry and then have chosen to follow a different career outside the industry. So I think it's more of a, a, an amazing option. You know, when we time charter ships, we love having options to be able to extend them and, and so on. Uh, and all of us who have done this in the past recognize there's a lot of value and optionality. And really, a family like uh, a traditional Greek shipping family that has been very successful in shipping really provides you a lot of optionality. And it can be a little bit intimidating to see what you're going to do with that optionality. But uh, I think, you know, the as I see many of my friends um, taking advantage of this optionality, I see some interesting things emerging and uh, coming out of it. Thank you very much. You are both considered entrepreneurs because you've uh, started your own business. Uh, Susanna, um, some people argue that innovation and tradition are opposites. How does your company navigate between innovation and tradition? 
Uh, thank you, Alexia, for the question. Thank you for having me today as well on this panel. Um, as mentioned earlier, we are also a second generation in our company, and we come from a company that specialized in a very niche and very old type of a fleet, which is extremely different than what we currently manage. Uh, so we had uh, refrigerated cargo vessels and we moved into bulk carriers in 2010, where we have uh, currently now a very young fleet. Uh, so we were in the back of our minds, the reefer fleet would slowly fade away. And this didn't happen. Uh, definitely not. It proved to be an extremely resilient fleet um, and extremely profitable as well. So we found ourselves managing a very old and very young fleet concurrently. Um, you know, in my mind, innovation by default is growth. Uh, it, it comes after growth, and growth cannot come without traditional values. Uh, so I think uh, there's been a, let's say, misunderstanding that tradition sometimes means um, conservatism that does actually hinder innovation, whereas I think one is complementary of the other. Um, you know, and we've, uh, our company was based for many years on a very traditional uh, type of carriage, which was a carriage of perishable goods that, you know, revolved uh, around cultivating relationships for many, many years and developing relationships as well. Um, and, you know, having traditional values such as doing business honorably, where your word is your bond, is something that only follows uh, innovation. Um, and it doesn't mean anything, basically, without having uh, tradition to follow, having a fully digitalized and fully modern fleet as well. So I think that fully embracing the, all innovations that uh, appear now uh, wouldn't mean much if you know, we didn't have the traditional values that are passed on from the previous generations. Thank you, Susanna. Uh, I don't know, perhaps uh, Alex, uh, would you like to comment on that or if you have anything to add? Thank you, Alexia, and thank you, Nicholas. Um, in my case, or in our company, for us, uh, tradition also means a very close connection to the seafarer, which I think was extremely important during COVID and all the challenges that we face with uh, crew changes. And also, um, to, to the earlier presentation, to George's point on all the decarbonization drive and all the uh, new fuels and alternatives that we're looking at, I think that also having that link to the sea and uh, you know, the ship to shore is, is so important. So. As we look at some of the, the digital, and I know we'll discuss it more later, I think um, measurement and, and looking at how we can adapt to these changing regulations, we need that link between uh, shore and sea. Thank you, Alex. Uh, Jani Dragni, uh, how do you enable, facilitate innovative ideas in your company? How do you shift a culture of yes, but to a culture of yes, and? Kalimera, Alexia. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I see innovation as obviously welcoming, evaluating, and implementing change in your organization. And the only way to do that is really immerse and involve yourself into those projects that you're trying to implement. It's easy always, you know, to just bring new ideas and just talk about them and then just try to delegate those processes, but that almost never works. So it's very important that you involve yourself, you involve your best people in it, the actual people that really run your company, and the, because these are the people that are going to implement those changes in the organization. Just to give an example, I mean, a couple of years ago, when the energy efficiency, let's say, department started to become more important, you were trying to measure our energy efficiency, the speed consumption of the vessels, and 
potentially that will lead to the MRV monitoring and then obviously to CO2 accounting that is, is coming. We are relatively a time charter company and my, our operations department didn't really understand why should we do that since basically we're not really immediately financially affected by that, by that uh, let's say, uh, trying to, to make the vessel as most efficient as possible. But in time, you know, if you involve the people, you involve your operations department, you explain to them that, that by saving one ton or two tons or even, even more, you become the vessel more attractive in, in due course and your charters are going to appreciate that. And that, of course, then will, will now it becomes even more and more relevant because obviously managing your energy is becoming one of the most important issues in the industry. Another, another way in order to implement innovation and change in the organization is being open enough in order to work, for example, with startups. That, you know, they bring new ideas to the company and then you have to sit down with them, you have to evaluate the ideas. Obviously, there are going to be a few lemons, you know, not everything is going to work. There's going to be a lot of ideas out there. But you have to see what works for you and try to adopt that. You have to provide feedback to those companies and get ideas in exchange. And then maybe you can invest them, you can invest in some of them, you can help them grow. And obviously collaborating with your best people, then you can, you can uh, improve and effect change. So overall, I think involving yourself and involving really uh, understanding how, what, what you want to achieve and clearly communicating uh, that fact. Thank you, Jan. Yes, the personal involvement is uh, the secret. And thank you also for the, for the story and the example. Uh, anyone else from the panel uh, that would like to add something? Perhaps, uh, Ioana, if you have... Yanni uh... um, covered a lot of things, but I, I will say a little bit what happens in our company, because generally we try to evolve and to grow. So in that setting, we, we like to, to hear new ideas. And uh, very often, we, we like to hear the ideas of the people already working in the company, because they have the best um, knowledge of what the problems really are. So um, I will always open, the doors are always open for new ideas. But provided that the person suggesting these ideas has done their homework, has, has uh, demonstrated how this uh, Whatever they're suggesting is applicable to us. How much is, uh, is it going to cost? What, is, what we expect to get out of it? How are we going to implement it, etc.? So this is a, a two-way street because uh, the employee working for you is suggesting the idea feels empowered when you actually um, um, implement something that has been suggested. And also the company benefits from it since the person has done their homework and it seems that it's a viable option. So. We, when a, any idea that comes up that uh, satisfies these criteria, we always implement. So we're always open for, uh, for suggestions. Thank you, Anna. And now uh, a difficult question for uh, Ioannis Martinos. Uh, innovation requires investment. How can you make it worth it? How can a shipping company ensure that it will be able to recover its money? Ensure is a strong word, but uh, I'll try to, to give an answer. So um, when I was in Tenamaris, which is our family business, in 2007, we started a large uh, project with DNV to do energy management. Um, so DNV came and uh, created a list of about 100 recommendations of things that we could do. 
on board our fleet in order to save money uh, on fuel and benefit the environment. Uh, at the time, uh, benefiting the environment was not as high in the list, so we were more focused on the saving money part. And um, we started implementing one, one by one all of these projects. And at the time, it was a pretty aggressive move because we invested $20 million in, in actually implementing all these 100 projects. And these were ranging from installing, let's say, variable frequency drives on the circulation pumps of the main engine, uh, but it also included uh, changing all the lighting on board all the ships to LED lights. It included things like um, uh, installing energy-saving devices uh, with, uh, you know, in front of the prop propeller, like a Mavis duct. So, you know, the list was huge, and the bill started piling up. And after I had spent the $20 million on the project, say, you know, some people in the company were uh, looking at me as if I was kind of like um, too aggressive, let's say, about it. So then we set up a mechanism to, to track how much we're going to save from this. And um, after a few, you know, after we had finished with all the installations and so on, uh, we, we actually computed that the saving was in the, in the order of uh, 10 million a year when the fuel prices were, were relatively high. So there are not many investments that you can make that give you such a return. Actually, uh, I was told uh, that recently they turned off the the counter that was uh, uh, measuring the money that had been saved from this project because it went over $100 million and they said, okay, it's a success. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, in some ways, was that innovation or not? You know, it's borderline innovation. It's not true innovation. We didn't invent the Mavis duct. We didn't invent uh, variable frequency drives. But we were innovative enough, let's say, to use them. And I think that's kind of the first step that shipping companies should make. Um, now, if you want to take it a step beyond that, you can actually you know, try to innovate by being one of the first ships to burn LNG. Or be, and that's an expensive game. And it's a game that, in the beginning, might play out very well. Uh, and and uh, you know, then LNG prices go up, and it doesn't work that well. Um, so, you know, there are certain uh, innovations which are less certain. Uh, and finally, there are the innovations of the kind that I'm trying to work on now, which have to do, let's say, with software for commercial management, which are take a lot longer to prove if this is something that's going to work. It takes a lot higher quality decision making, and you need to get the strategy and hit the nail uh, right on the head and get the strategy right. But if you do, you can have a pretty big payout. The problem is you don't know what, what the case is going to be. Maybe it will take, you know, in, in my case, I, I'm now, uh, you know, waiting for another five to 10 years to know if what we are doing has worked. Um, but if I look at some other technology companies in the space, for example, you might have heard of uh, IMOS, which is a voyage management tool created by Vesson Nautical. Uh, they started 20 years ago, and it took them 20 years, but they just raised money at a billion dollar valuation is rumored in the market. They raised to 200 million. So that 
is a relatively successful business, uh, maybe not as successful as uh, you know a, a big shipping company that has uh, hit the nail on the head uh, in terms of buying uh, 20 container ships uh, three years ago. But, um, but in some ways, it's very creative and can be also financially rewarding. Um, and then, of course, there are some companies that we have never heard of because they tried, they failed. We don't know about them necessarily. Or there are some famous examples, maybe like uh, uh, what was the name of this company? Uh, Open Seas or something like that. I don't remember what it was. Uh, that tried to do chartering online and disintermediate the brokers. That was a big mistake. They lost $40 million. So, you know, the answer is, I think the short answer is, is if you know what you're doing, you can make a lot of money. If you don't know what you're doing, you can lose a lot of money. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you for sharing your views and for this excellent example. Alex, uh, about technology. The pandemic has expedited the need for radical changes in the way we do business. We have rapidly moved to the let's get digital age in order to survive. Technology has ensured business continuity under a new perspective. How has your company embraced technological innovation? So thank you, Alexia. I think um, last year we, we really embraced sort of a hybrid model in terms of how we visited the vessels uh, virtually, be it through trainings or um, audits. Even uh, we've done um, 10 uh, installations, scrubber installations in China without ever having sending somebody uh, to the shipyard there, working just completely uh, remotely with a local team there. But also on, on technology in terms of a solution for the future, I think uh, to the point about innovation, it's so exciting that there's much more focus on, on the tech space in shipping, be it from uh, venture capital and, and from funds looking to sort of unlock what has been a, a space maybe that's been underdeveloped. And there are many new companies emerging there. And uh, we'll definitely see some consolidation, but I think it just speaks to um, the fact that we, again, need to invest in, in technology as a bridge to hit a lot of these targets. And I think also talking about innovation, and we have a lot of small, medium-sized companies in the shipping space, we'll have to look at open innovation and be very um, sort of embraceive of a partnership-type model because the reality is these targets are enormously difficult to, to hit. And without some sort of open innovation and partnership, and you know, not everyone can be like, Maersk, uh, we will have to um, you know, work together, which I think historically has been somewhat a bit of a fiefdom. But if we embrace that attitude, it will be very beneficial as we go forward. Thank you, Alex. Yanni uh, Dragni, um, if you want to share your experience and tell us, uh, can a company's ownership structure affect innovation in shipping? Does it make a difference if you go public or stay private? What is your experience? Well, we had some, some experience listing our part of our company in London back in 2006 and then privatizing again in 2016. Back then, ESG and you know, the environmental agenda of today wasn't obviously as high up in the agenda, but certain issues, for example, does affect the way that, that management can, can think about, about the business. For example, back then, you know, it was all about pure play 
companies and uh, was all about you know being very specific to what you do and being very uh, specialized in one specific sector even certain areas of that for example being a cape size player purely now we have seen obviously and we, as we knew back then that diversifying having a diversified fleet can help you much better weather the shipping cycles today also of course, this, this perception has changed and the diversified companies are uh, very much, uh, let's say, understood to, to affect, uh, to be able to weather the shipping cycles, but also, you know, focusing on one sector for certain successful companies can make them grow bigger and, and uh, better. Um, regarding innovation, it's all about management and the alignment of shareholder interests and management. So it's relatively relevant if it's a public or a private company. A public company can, let's say, for example, have to hit certain more short-term targets at times. So they do have to show real progress quarter by quarter, year by year. A private company can set longer-term targets as long as they are realistic targets and, and they are well thought about. There's a flip side to that point. You know, a private company can, for example, become lazy if they are successful in playing the shipping cycles, for example, Yanis given uh, one uh, said, if you bought a few container vessels three years ago and that's it, you know, you've done amazingly well. But that is not really innovation. You just timed the market well, you know, COVID happened and then we enjoyed a great container market that didn't bring any real change to the table. So basically, I think it's irrelevant, but it ESG and certain environmental targets should not become just a tick-the-box uh, exercise. They should really, and, and obviously targets evolve through time, is maybe what you thought was best two years ago will not be the best, and you have to create that uh, ability to maneuver within time. But I think at the end of the day, it's about management, about the commitment of management, and how open they are to new ideas and bringing them into the organization. Thank you, Yanni. Uh, Alex, uh, do you agree with Yanni's views? Your company is uh, listed in the U.S. How, uh, how has this affected uh, your strategy? And uh, if you can tell us about the strategy for the future and what are the trends to be watching in your market? Um, I think that the, the point on diversification is, is very interesting. But uh, in our case, just speaking from personal experience, we are a pure play. Um, platform and, and it's given us a window to visit uh, charters, have a much bigger sort of deck of cards to sit at the table with, have a young fleet. Um, and you know, we have navigated through difficult cycles as well. Uh, one of the ways we try and manage that is through um, a hedge chartering strategy. So we're never fully spot. But when you do have a big fleet, it can be challenging there because you inevitably are long on your spot shipping. Uh, we have a pool that we operate with Japanese partners, which is also uh, a way for us to manage some uh, COAs. But um, no, I think that uh, it's difficult, can't really speak about the future, but it's, it's been a, a bit of a roller coaster, and we've been in difficult periods in the public space. We've, we're a billion dollar valuation, and then we're half a billion dollar valuation, and you want to make sure that you get enough coverage from analysts, and if you're too small, there's only a certain amount of companies analysts can cover. So I think the story, you know, it's still to be, there's no ending yet, but um, from a purely uh, kind of size perspective, it's afforded us the ability to be 
a leading uh, player in the space and, and to ride the cycles quite well. Um, it's given us also a transparency and openness to some U.S. institutional investors. Of course, you are hitting, you have quarterly targets and, and you have to manage that. Um, and I think on the point of, of innovation too, maybe one idea I would have in a public company like that is you have to sort of set up a, a small kind of a bit more rebellious group inside to look at innovation or a small team and then have them report back up. But as Yanni said, you, know, you need that alignment of management interests and you need to allow people to kind of take risk and, and do that by themselves. But it, it can obviously pay off in the future if it's successful. And, um, so I think, you know, I, I take, I, I respect Yanni's opinion and in our experience it's been so far uh, positive, but you know, let's see. Thank you, Alex. You are both uh, embracing innovation. Uh, Susanna, uh, the ESG is a hot topic. There is a lot of discussion about the importance of ESG. How confident are you that the industry will meet ESG standards over the next decade? What are the major barriers to achieving the results needed? Uh, firstly, I think that we should start by pointing out that only recently have uniform standards and uniform reporting standards started to appear. So we are still quite far off because everybody has sort of been doing whatever they believe to be compliant. So this is an issue in itself. Until uh, uniform standards are set, then we don't really have something to uh, look forward to. Uh, and, you know, ESGs and the overall concept of sustainability are commonly thought to be about the environment, whereas we know that, you know, it's only one of the three pillars. And it's very much talked about in the maritime industry, whereas it's a concept that applies to all industries, steel industry, energy industry. Uh, however, the maritime industry is actually much better prepared than other industries, considering that it has very strong international uh, regulations already in place. Um, mostly on the environmental side, the investments needed are very large, so we need to stop throwing the funding ball uh, from one to the other who will be doing the funding and actually start looking at the bigger picture. And another thing that I think will hinder um, how this will go forward is that the fact that the S and the G side, the social and the government side, haven't yet been uh, able to be correlated into financial uh, figures uh, in order for them to attract finance for. So, for example, we can have specific figures and data when it comes to um, employee turnovers or uh, education structures, but this actually can't be uh, translated, let's say, into financial figures. So until that happens, then we can't uh, attract finance for all of the, all of the three pillars. Uh, on the other hand, I do believe that the ESGs are here to stay. Uh, I think we should look at them mostly as a code of conduct that will allow us to look into more responsible consumption and production, rather than simple reporting standards that we have to comply with. Uh, so, yes, it will take time, but, you know, shipping has proven time and time again to be adaptable. Uh, I think it will do so again, and whatever standards are set, I think they will be easily met by uh, shipping overall. Thank you, Susanna. Does anyone else uh, want to comment on that? And I'm a bit conscious about the time, because I cannot see the time now. <laughs> no. Am I going, is anyone... No, it's shut down. So it stopped. It stopped. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought we had some more, some more time, so I don't know why. Eh? Just, no, we do. 
I have one more question for the panel, if we have time. So, question to Jans Martinos and uh, for the rest of the panel uh, to comment as well if there is time. How can Greek shipping maintain its dominance in the global maritime industry in the future? What skills do you consider are essential towards that end? You give me all the difficult questions. It's true. <laughs> uh, the others are difficult too. But, uh, <laughs> At least they, they are difficult for me. Uh, but maybe I think one of the things that's really important in Greek shipping uh, and that has been really important and has helped us build this amazing ecosystem that we have here in the country is that it's one of the few industries in Greece that have had a stable uh, tax framework. Uh, so, you know, maintaining that is essential, I, I think, to, uh, as, a, as a base let's say, to, to being able to, to do even more amazing things. But besides that, uh, what I'm noticing lately is that you have an incredible ecosystem of ancillary services that are also uh, flourishing in the Greek ecosystem. And that started earlier with people, let's say, supplying ships out of Piraeus or you know, making, let's say, ropes for the ship instead of importing them. Uh, we saw some big companies, let's say, come out of this space. Uh, which was like more hardware oriented and more practical companies. But then as time went by, um, the services started developing into more abstract services, like for example, the whole scene with broking in the Greek ecosystem has really flourished. You see amazing companies in the broking space. They're increasingly competing with uh, international broking uh, companies that we used to you know, admire from afar, and now the, the performance of the Greek companies are, you know, close, better, the same, depending on the, you know, on a company by company basis. But I find that fascinating. Uh, similarly, you see uh, other services like uh, technical, outsource technical management, or you see uh, companies that uh, do commercial uh, management for ships. And all of these things are, let's say, traditional shipping plays that, that Greece is increasingly becoming better at. And the ability to understand how these models work and have complementary businesses which are not as capital intensive in the shipping dom Greek shipping domain, I think, creates more stability, creates more completeness, let's say, in our ecosystem. And in addition to that, and one field that I'm excited to personally support as well because it's... Um, you know, I think sometimes the people, let's say, in society that have, uh, let's say, some privileges should support innovation, the arts, and other things. And the equivalent of doing that in shipping, I think, is to support uh, startups, as Yanis was saying not so earlier. Uh, we, you know, we see some companies, the Harbor Lab has set up a, a, a kiosk outside. Uh, I was sitting... Uh, next to the CEO of Irma First. Uh, all these companies started, uh, some of them started recently, some, some started a while back. Uh, I see also Roberto in the audience uh, that uh, runs Deep Sea. All these companies are on to something. It's gonna take a lot of effort, 
Uh, it's going to be, you know, a race with companies that are competing from uh, the non-Greek ecosystem. But I think we have some pretty good players on, on our team. And that's going to, you know, help create a more complete Greek ecosystem. Thank you. Thank you for closing a very positive uh, note. Uh, anyone else perhaps uh, who wants to add something? We have three minutes. Joanna, perhaps, or? Um, we are going back to what Yanni said about uh, the Greek shipping. We are very fortunate to live in a country that has a huge tradition in shipping of more than 4,000 years. And that has uh, developed over the years. And it has, it's due to the fact that Greeks are by nature adaptable and risk takers as well. But in order to maintain this, we need uh, regulatory framework stability, which is something that we see very often being attacked. But um, I believe that Europe is slowly seeing the value of shipping and how important it is to, to remain independent and not to be lost to, due to failed policies to countries in the Far East or the Middle East. And uh, if anything good has come out of the war is that it's, uh, it has shown how important en energy independence is. And the only way that uh, you can achieve this energy independence is through shipping. And uh, I think this is the... This uh, will help also form policies that will keep shipping to where it is at the moment and not be lost like we lost our shipbuilding to the Far East and also the U.S. lost its uh, um, ship, ship owning uh, industry as well. So uh, I think there is a way, uh, we have a far way to go, but uh, we're, we're going towards the right direction. Thank you, Anna. We have... Uh, approximately two minutes for anyone in the audience that would like to ask uh, questions. Nope, I'm not seeing anyone. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.